Hello, everybody. Welcome to the No Breaking Podcast. Um, with me today, I've got uh, a friend, uh, also a friend of the podcast, been a guest on the podcast before, um, also an incredibly talented individual, uh, works in a few different spaces, uh, but you probably all know him as John Tabal. John, firstly, as always, I'd like to say thank you so much for making the time. Uh, I know, obviously, this is precious time we have, and and with things, and you being probably one of the most busiest people I know, uh, thanks for sitting down with us and having a chat. Thank you, James. Always an honor and pleasure to be on board here, and uh, always fun catching up with you, too. Well, it's so nice of you to say it. And hopefully uh, the family's all okay, the, the three of you there are all doing well. We're all doing good, man, staying safe and uh, staying home. Yeah, of course. That's what everyone should be doing, staying safe. That's the important thing. But, I mean, admittedly, I will be biased and say I got you on the podcast today, not so much talk about uh, you staying safe and being at home, which is obviously important, but I really sort of wanted to dig into how, obviously, you're an incredibly talented artist, designer, but if we take a step back, can you sort of talk me through how you sort of, how did this sort of come about? Where was this to start from you, from your journey in the Philippines to where you are today? Right. So in the Philippines, when I was growing up there, um, we were always, well, at least we were watching all the Japanese animations back at home and me as a little kid just trying to learn how to draw them. So I would always um, try to, you know, whatever, however I can mimic some of the styles and and, um, artwork and I'll grab my notebooks, uh, grab a chalk and draw on walls and stuff. And and that never really left me just because I was so interested and, and, and curious about like how to draw all those anime robots and stuff. So <clears throat> from there, um, it kind of morphed into like, oh, maybe I can just try drawing other things beyond just, you know, anime stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, I got into just drawing portraits, even drawing, um, you know, going to school, like you learn like different mediums like watercolor and oil paints and all that stuff. So I tried learning and, you know, experimenting with all those different <clears throat> uh, disciplines and stuff. But I've always gone back to just, you know, pen and paper or pencil and, you know, doing sketches and stuff. and then, that's where I thought, okay, maybe I can draw other things beyond just portraits and uh, robots and animes and all this stuff. So, <clears throat> but I didn't really get into car stuff until way later because back home in the Philippines, it was, I grew up in a pretty poor neighborhood. So yep, there's a lot of like tricycles, but not so much like exotic cars or anything. Mm-hmm. So I would see them on like magazines, but nothing really in person. So until like I get I got older, and then I would go to the city, and I would see the the cars in person, and I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. And I would see them on TV and seeing them move and seeing different angles of it that got me really, you know, interested even more. But um, never really thought of getting into it until 
I got here in the States where now I'm like, hey, I can actually buy a car and fix them up the way I want to. Yeah. So but, which was uh, the, the, the cars that when you started, when you started thinking about this is the car that I can purchase, this is the car that picks up, where, what sort of realm did that push you towards? Well, my very first car is a Volkswagen Baja Bug. It's kind of like just a normal bug, but it's for off-road. And mm-hmm. my dad's really into my, my dad's really into cars, and he, I think he honestly, I think he bought that car for himself, and then he just said, "Oh, this is your car." But I never got to drive it because it was a stick shift, and at the time, um, I didn't have my license, so I, it was just like parked in the driveway, and he was uh, the one working on it. And I'm not sure if he drove it um, a few times, but he had me just. Um, work on the the body just to uh, because he was thinking of um, repainting the whole car so I I was like sanding the body down and everything and um, but eventually knowing that there's no way I can really drive the car we end up just selling it and then I got my second car after that was a Volkswagen uh, Rabbit convertible which okay was like a model before they actually labeled it the cabriolet um yeah but um at the time i'm like oh wow you know what can i do with this car start looking up again like on magazines and stuff just to see what aftermarket parts are available and i you know was very poor i couldn't really afford anything and um i just you know thought okay maybe lowering springs and uh seat covers <laughs> that's pretty much the extent of my modification level at the time you know what i can afford um look and, you oh yeah, yeah somewhere. I'll, I'll polish the, the hubcaps that was in there it. you go see uh, elbow grease so that, that adds extra four right. horsepower at least right. um and then and then shortly after that um when i got hired in the comic books i sold the rabbit and then got into a honda prelude um yeah i forgot what year the prelude was but it was a white um it was it wasn't the four-wheel steering it was just a two-wheel drive um automatic and it was it was a fun car and they had a flip-up headlights which i i dug at the time and um and because i was getting somewhat of a good money. I had some play money to, you know, to use to actually fix up the car and I went all out and put nitrous in the car and start going to battle of the imports to actually waste them. And, you know, even with the nitrous, I was doing like 16 seconds for a quarter mile. <laughs> it was really pathetic, but I was, it was fun as heck. I thought I was going like Look, every it, single time, you know. Exactly. If you're the one that's enjoying yourself, then, then that's the important thing. But if we take a step back though, I mean, so fill us in on sort of how you got into the, the comic world then as well, as we talk about this, because that sort of coincides with your journey of being able to sort of uh, move upwards, one might say. So how did that sort of come about? So, yeah, the comic books came about just because it was more of a necessity. And I'm always fond of drawing whatever, right? Like I said, like all, um, growing up drawing anime and stuff. I thought like my cousin's all into collecting comic books and we would go to different 
comic book stores and comic book signings even to meet the artists and stuff. And then um, one time I was like, I heard about the signing that Rob Liefeld was having, Rob Liefeld, the creator of um, uh, Extreme Studios and Deadpool mm -hmm. and so many other characters and Cable and, um, he was there with his crew signing and meeting fans and stuff. And I thought I have, I had drawn some characters on my own and I just wanted to learn more because it's yep. just fun learning different styles. Right. So I thought if I meet this guy or at least some of the artists in the studio, in his studio, I can, you know, get some good insights to learn how to improve my craft. And so I went there brought my a bunch of my work and showed it to Rob and finally, you know, after waiting in line for so long, he said, Hey, not bad. Do you want to be an inker? Are you looking for a job? Do you want to be an inker? I'm like, what do you say? You just say yes. You say yes. Don't say. Of course. Yeah. If anyone says you say do you yes. want a job, you say yes. And then you ask I, I what is this actually? Yeah, an inker which is a term I'd never heard before because I just thought I just thought comic books you just need a writer and yep. an artist. An artist will be the one drawing, you know, the the, the script. And I thought, what's an what's an inker? And then <clears throat> later on, I realized, okay, there's a, a writer that, who will write the script and the plot and everything, and then will pass it on to the penciler. Now the penciler will translate the words into pictures calling all the different shots and how many ever panels are in a page and then the penciler will then give it to an inker who will redraw everything that the penciler did in pencil but with ink to finalize everything and then from the ink a version of the artwork will scan it and then it'll be given to the colorist who will then color everything digitally and that's also at the same time when they add all the word balloons and special sound effects and stuff and then they'll reduce it down to a comic book size print and go to the printing place but um i never thought there were so many different steps so when i heard of it on inker i'm like i'm just thinking okay an inker's got to be part of the process somehow so i just said yes not knowing what i really am signing for and i got in the studio they sat me down, <laughs> they, they showed me the pen that they use to ink the books. And I'm like, I've never seen this pen before in my life. What is this? So I just sat there and, but Danny Mickey, which is one of the artists that um, was helping me get situated, gave me the, the, the pencils and some of the practice pages. Yep. And I was just like looking at it. I'm just like, I think I'm going to get fired today. Every single day I come in, I'm, I always thought that just because I'm like, I'm not supposed to be here. I think I, I you know, I said yes to something. I have, I had no idea what to do because I'm just thinking, I just wanted to learn. But here I yep. am, they're giving me an actual job to, you know, to be an, a legitimate, you know, comic book artist. But I'm like, I, I'll stay as long as, you know, they want me here. So I just kept on every day trying to pick up things and how to do things. And it's a pen that they give you where you have to dip it in the ink bottle and then maybe draw a couple of lines and then you keep on doing the same routine back and forth, back and forth. And um, it was 
so intimidating. I was just like, I think I'm going to go back to Payless Shoes, which was my old job. selling <laughs> shoes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and but they kept me there for one week. After a week, I got my check. I'm like, oh, it's pretty good. And then I kept on coming back and they just kept me there for a while. And um, fortunately, I, I had a lot of help from all the artists in the studio that uh, showed me the ways, I guess. And I would go home and I would practice and go back to the studio and, and do some more practice. But I never really got to start working until much later when they, I think they know that I didn't really know what I was doing. But I think Rob kind of had a sense that the potential that I might have if I, you know, latch on to the uh, to the skill that's needed to be an inker. So, unfortunately, yeah. everything worked out. And uh, maybe that Rob was just sort of guiding you to what he thought you could become, and then you were able to sort of blossom in that role. Yeah. No, I I'm thankful to Rob for for uh, giving me that opportunity, just because. Everybody just thought, oh, if you want to be a comic book artist, you just automatically go straight to being a penciler because that's the main artist I, I feel. I felt like, you know, for the book, you know, once, mm -hmm. once the writer is done, you see his name right on the credits, the penciler, you know. He's the one yep. that, that takes the style and the, the look of the whole entire book. And Inker, we're like the second step, almost like the behind the scene type of guys. But I didn't mind it. I, I, I learned a lot and uh, I still enjoyed inking up to now. And then so how many sort of comic uh, like franchises have you worked on? Because you work, let's be honest here, John, you've worked on a couple of comics in your time. Yes. Um, when I got hired, I got hired in the middle of when Image Comics was blowing up. Uh, Image Comics came about from all the different artists like Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, um, Todd McFarlane, and all the guys from Marvel um, Comics, they all got together, formed a whole new company called Image Comics. And then from there, um, they started producing their own titles. They had more control. And and um, so from there, I went to full span of working under Image Comics, actually under Extreme Studios, which is Rob Liefeld's uh, studio. Mm -hmm. And Extreme Studios became uh, awesome studios, I think, at one point, and then from there, I shifted to working at Top Cow Studios under Mark Silvestri, which is another Image uh, Comics founder. And then from there, I met. Um, I think I was already freelance by the time I started working at um, Top Cow, and then we went to start doing some Marvel comics titles, and then from Marvel went to DC Comics. So I'm just jumping from one place to another, but it's not really like me doing it on my own, but um, I was being carried by a whole team. So if a writer and a penciler will say, hey, John, we have this new gig over at this place, would you want to come along with us? So I'm just like, I'm down for it. You know, I, uh, I love the team that had taken me and, um, we develop our own style and it's, it's, it's always fun working with the same guys. So I would go wherever they go. You know? So if they go to do some work with Marvel, at certain titles like X-Men or Avengers and stuff, I would, I'm all, I'm all for it. So. 
I like that. I mean, that shows your, your versatility and what you're able to do. And so if we sort of twin that back and sort of jump back over to the, the automotive side of the business then, so while you're working um, on the comics and as a freelancer in the comic world, how did you sort of then step back in and sort of push your design work into where you've now become like one of the forefront in the aftermarket world? The automotive part of my career didn't really start until uh, later on when I was still doing comics. And I'm like, oh, I have, a car. I wanted to, a car to build to kind of customize because I was kind of getting deeper into car stuff. And yeah. I never really had money to support the hobby. Everything was so expensive. And But with comics at the time, it was blowing up. So um, I was able to save some money to actually buy parts for the cars. And I sold the Prelude and got into BMW uh, 3 Series, my E36. Mm-hmm. And I thought, really, the only reason to get into BMW from my Preludes because I was getting pulled over a lot with my Honda Preludes and stuff. So I thought, oh, I'll, I'll drive a nicer car, a 3 Series, and, and maybe I won't get pulled over as much. It's not really the car, it's how you drive. I was very ignorant. and um, <laughs> You learn these lessons. <laughs> learn these lessons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> but from from owning that E36, it opened up a, another set of worlds for me of modifications because now uh, buying magazines um, that's printed in Europe only, and I was thinking, gosh, how can I bring all those parts in to my car? And thankfully, my comic book uh, job was supporting that obsession, and then. Like all those ideas of like, man, I want my car to be unique because everybody's doing it this way. Everybody's doing it that way. I want to do it my way. But the only way to do that is to design my own parts or at least grab one part from this tuner and then another part from this tuner and then mesh them in and maybe modify the parts together. So now it looks like no other parts that's out in the market right now. And that was my mentality going in. And and then when I was trying to convey that vision to a body shop I was working with, they couldn't really understand fully like what I wanted. So I said, okay, maybe I'll do a Photoshop rendering of like what I want my bumper to look like at least. Grab the Photoshop and printed uh, a sample image for them to look at. And they're like, oh yeah, this is much better. So something clicked at that time when I'm like thinking, this could be something to where I can do a photorealistic rendering of a finished build instead of just a sketch of what you want, but something that they can kind of look at and, 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 and understand the proportions and the scale and uh, even the size of the vents. Um, because I feel like sometimes when you do sketches, it's not, it conveys the idea, but Portion-wise, it's still up in the air. But when you do a photorealistic rendering, it's closer to how the car would look in real life. So when you are uh, adding vents or cutting up the bumper and resizing some of that opening, the air intake, it's easier to kind of understand when you're looking at a a photorealistic rendering. Uh, And and it, it... uh, for efficiency's sake, it doesn't you know you don't have to go back and forth and 
and eliminate some of that misunderstandings and stuff. And from there, word got around like, hey, my, you know, my, my friend contacted me. Hey, I'm building my car. Can you help me create a rendering for, for this? And we did that. And then just word started kind of spreading and to to where I'm at now. It's it's just word of mouth, really. Was that uh, John P's uh, Scion? Would that have been my, one of your first ones, or was that later? That was definitely one of the uh, earlier um, projects I got involved in. Um, at least the ones that were showcased in Atsima. I okay. had probably a handful of cars that I was involved in before that car that was never showed at SEMA, but that was in the show scene down here in SoCal. Um, but one of the bigger projects that my name was attached in was actually John Pangolina's Scion. Uh, oh, and then I guess from there, I suppose the ball just starts rolling downhill for you, right? Yeah, it was uh, every single project exposed me to a whole different set of crowd, I guess. And um, the more we, I, I, I got a chance to work on all these projects, the, the the more people will start calling and at least recognizing my name and stuff. And I was just kind of blown away just because it was something that it was never planned. Like I never thought, you know, I would do this and, and you know, make a living out of it. It was just more of a hobby. I, I love cars. I love designs specifically. And, you know, when you look at a picture of a car, you're just like, how would this car look lowered or with this kind of graphics or with this kind of wheels? And my mind doesn't have, never has a clear picture of what a car would look like with all these modifications. Mm-hmm. Some do, and I envy those people, but in my mind, it's always kind of blurry and it will pop up like half a second of a clear picture, but it'll go away. So it's, it's, it's frustrating. So then creating a rendering of what I was, you know, all the ideas I had in my mind is a bit more permanent and you can actually look at it in the screen for a long time and it never goes away unless you delete it and stuff. But, um, yeah, and, and, and all those guys calling and um, shortly after all those times, the earlier times, I'm just like, hmm, okay, I'll do it. I hope I can do it, but uh, everything all um, turned out okay and they were able to build most of it. And there's a lot of projects that we worked on that also never got built too. So it was just yeah, one I'll, of those things. I was going to say, obviously, you'll have, you'll have be, as people will come to you with ideas and concepts that, some will obviously come to fruition. Some others will probably fall out because of different changes. I'm guessing, obviously, in projects and things that you work with and obviously things that are always big, important things like money. And that's probably a factor in some of these reasons why some things don't always go ahead, I'm guessing, right? Right, right. Because most of the work that we do is specifically for proposals. So if a company mm-hmm. is asking for a rendering from a builder, uh, they'll contact me and they say, hey, John, we want to build this car to submit to this company and we want to present to them our ideas of what we wanted to do. So some of those projects, sometimes the company will just say, yeah, no, we're not interested, sorry. And it just goes away. And some of the ideas will then like, hey, we like the idea, go ahead, here's the car, go ahead and build it um, all from the rendering, you know? Yeah, 
And then, so what are the types of software that you've become accustomed to or uh, learned to use over this time period as you've started doing more and more working in the digital realm? Right. So everything started with Photoshop. I think I was using mm -hmm. the earlier versions of Photoshop. And then I'm still using CS5 right now, which is really old version of Photoshop. But I my knowledge of Photoshop is not really that great. Uh, I just know the basics. Just whatever I need to get, you know, what I need done is all the tools that I really need. So I probably know like maybe 10, 20% of the power of Photoshop. And even then I thought, man, I, I'm, there's gotta be more that I can do because when you do Photoshop, everything's 2D and you always relying on reference photos and stuff. And uh, sometimes I would go to client's house and take pictures of the cars and then start modifying from there um, using Photoshop again, but it's kind of tedious. So I thought 3D has got to be a, a better way because then once you have a 3D model that you can you know, study the design and study the car, however many angles you you want to you know look at it. And so I started shifting and learned um, Blender 3D mm -hmm. over like after like a Christmas break. It took me literally that one week to learn Blender. Just watch like YouTube videos and um, I would use um, Keyshot to upload all the models to um, add textures and environment and finishes and make them all pretty. But those are pre pretty much the software. I'm still using Photoshop to do some final edits, but pretty much straight out of Keyshot um, is 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 uh, pretty solid already. And Blender, I I use them to design the body kits and other modifications for wheels. Um, I use CAD software, um, but just whatever I can really you know get a hold of and, and, and work with. But um, there's other softwares out there that are definitely much more powerful, but those are the ones that I'm currently using. And when you are doing the, the, the aftermarket work, is there any that you find, like is it like, for example, say wheels or body parts or eggs, anything that you're like creating where in CAD or when you're making the renderings, is there anything that you find is, did you particularly enjoy, I should say, you find it easier to work on than other parts? And other parts, you're like, oh, no, they're getting me to do this. This is always a challenge. It takes me way longer than I, I'd like to do on it. The design of the body kit is probably, for me, the funnest. Just because yep. I specialize in that one, and I am still currently, a lot of my normal gigs are designing body kits for companies that I don't even post in my Instagram, but I'm I'm pretty sure you've seen all my work, just not knowing that I've done doing, I'm the one doing all the designs and stuff for them. But yeah, that's the, ben body the kit, benefits of being a freelancer, right? Right, right, right. Um, but yeah, body kits, man, uh, those are just tons of fun. I can look at a car, stock body car, and add, you know, front lip side skirts or do a full wide body, doing concepts and stuff and like all the cars that you saw at uh, or not all but a few of the cars that you saw at the Toyota Tread Pass uh, those cars were fun too because some of those concepts 
you kind of almost have to create your own look and style. So we don't base our kits from an existing kit, but we just have to customize and make a one-off for the client. So those are always fun. And so, for example, obviously uh, 2020 has been a bit of an, an unusual year in terms of everything in this world, but obviously you, your work gets displayed at shows like SEMA and the like. How difficult is it for you, if, for example, in, say, a SEMA crunch? Obviously, we hear from the builders that are doing things last minute. Maybe they've got a Bluetooth transmission, that kind of thing. But if yourself, mm -hmm. I mean, how much is the push up to SEMA? Is it all work before? And when do you find that your work, say, for example, SEMA stops, that day before, a week before, a month before, what sort of time frame does that work out for you? It all depends on the project. Some of the projects where it comes down to the wire to where we're on the actual showroom floor of SEMA, trying to touch some parts of the car to get it ready for the big show. And some of them are really fully ready, but ready enough. But there's projects where we would start in August, it'll be done you know, within a month or a couple of months and, you know, we just wash our hands off of that easily. But most of the projects comes down to the wire. And you would think that as an artist, you know, your job is just to create the renderings and that's it. But sometimes there are updates that you that the client would request. It's like, oh, John, we changed direction for this. Can you update the rendering to this kind of style or design or this new wheels that we you know work with the other wheels didn't work out or we have a new vendor that's jumping in uh for this project that um we need to be included so a lot of the renderings that i would create for them uh would be used uh to press release in their in their press release so that whatever the image um is, is uh, shown on those needs to be correct and accurate and make sure all the vendors and all the business um, people that are associated with that build is uh, is all included. So we, you know, and that's constantly updating to the very end until the car is revealed. It sounds like you, you kind of, so it sounds like you're very, obviously keeping updating these builds is keeping you so pretty much on your toes all the time then. All the time. I always feel that you need to really help out your clients as much as you can just because your job doesn't end just when you submit the renderings. If they have adjustments, if you have revisions, if they have questions on certain angles, if they want to see the car a different angle from a different perspective, you should be able to provide that. And it to me, I've learned the easier you are to work with, the better the chance of the clients that you like to come back. So I just tried to yeah. do my best. I mean, it's the old adage, right? The customer's always right, okay? Yeah, yeah. Not always, but they, <laughs> they're they the one who signs the paycheck, so you got to make sure. That well, yeah, as, and the next <laughs> thing is obviously as a freelancer, as long as the check's cash, they're, they're, they're always right. Right. Yeah, that is true. Um, but if we look, for example, and take a look at your um, your social media feeds, I mean, not only do you obviously highlight your incredible work that you do, you've got your own cars on there, but there's also some uh, would appear to take your lighter side of life approach to some of the renderings that you put together. So, I mean, how much joy is it when you put something in, when you create something that goes up on 
for example, social media. I mean, obviously, social media is sort of a, a thing that everyone, a necessary evil these days. But uh, you can't tell me that the work that you put into some of these ones is just purely for your own enjoyment. I mean, that must still require some effort on your part. You can't be like knocked out in 10, 15 minutes, you're telling me. It's nothing I post on my social media is, is, is I mean, I wish it was that easy that I can just, <laughs> you know, click a button, everything turns out good. I would spend hours and hours looking at the same picture. I'm like, this looks terrible. And then days would go by just because I'm like, I don't think it's ready, you know, for me to post. And then at the end deciding, ah, crap, this is not good. So I just throw it away after days and all the hours, you know, spend time working and looking at it. But I try to at least be not as critical and just post whatever I feel personally that was kind of interesting at the time. And when I look back at it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's not so good. But then some of the not so good type of renderings are the ones that blows up. And I'm like, wow, okay, I didn't expect that. And sometimes it's the other way where I thought like, oh, this rendering was pretty nice. I thought, you know, I really liked the way it turned out, but it, it, it barely gets any traction online and surprised me just the same. And that's, that's, that's okay. You know, so you just never know, but the goal is to just post whatever I feel that's interesting to me. And then hopefully others would, you know, learn or, or pick up something from that piece. But, um, yeah. And and speaking of that, then of what's interesting to you, who about on, if we're looking and talking about like artists, which are some of the artists that, that do interest you and you enjoy seeing their work and seeing them progress over time? A few guys, uh, they're close friends of mine, like Judson Bryan. Um, he's the guy that um, founded JDM Ego. I've known this guy forever and seen his stuff. He's a master of illustrator stuff, like vector, uh, vector type of work. And I've seen his stuff from the past, like when he was doing all this early um work and um now that i look at his stuff and a lot of his work really reminds me of the illustrations that i would drool over uh, on option magazines like covers of option magazines mm -hmm. and some of that stuff kind of blows me away because it's I, sometimes I, there's no way to distinguish the two anymore i'm like jay you've you've arrived to this level to where a lot of the work that he's putting out is straight out of option magazines and um and that to me is very inspiring you know to see the progress uh another guy walter kim is um if you've seen his earlier work it's a lot of uh just manual type of you know drawing and all digital paintings and stuff but now he's getting into 3d and he's just kicking butt and just like, this guy is dangerous. I mean, he is so talented and he is just picking up things and soaking up everything like a sponge. And he's applying himself. And he's like learning with the same type of software that I'm using, which is Blender. But he's doing stuff that are, I'm like, whew, so good. He's amazing. Walter Kim, I got his actual 
username on uh, on Instagram, but uh, if you type in his name, I'm sure it'll pop up. And then obviously, and it would be do us an injustice to talk about your your current stable of, of cards that you've got. Obviously, you've moved on from your uh, pro U days, and now you've got a pair of Europeans there in the driveway. I think is that still the case, right? Still the case. I uh, still have the E36, which thankful to the guys at ASD Suspension, they got it back out and running after 12 years of just sitting in the garage. So now it's actually uh, working and and drivable again. I just need to get, get it registered. Uh, so still have the E36. The RWB is parked next to it. Um, RWB 964, which was built in 2015, and man, I I'm just bummed because I can't really drive uh, them as much because of the workload that I'm under right now. Too busy, but um, when when I can, you know, I try to enjoy them at least the RWB because those, that's the one toy car that we can actually drive around with. Yeah, and so let's talk. So how did the RWB sort of come about for you? RWB came about, my goodness, that's another, I think that's for another session just because it's so deep. <laughs> but it Look, came about when... <laughs> we've got time, you know, we've got time, all the time in the world as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I'll, I'll do a concise version for you just because. Um, but it came about when I saw some pictures of it online and then I started um, really just again getting fascinated with how wide some of those cars look they just look like a normal porsche like a turbo model but the fenders are just an ex a little bit more extra wider and just the way they look and and what sold me was seeing them as a group like a bunch of them parked together or at the track together and i'm like i gotta have one of those Whatever I do, I need to at least experience owning one. And then uh, I had a blog back then. I was, you know, posting a bunch of RWD stuff. And then all of a sudden, an article came out with my logo on one of Makai-san race car, RWD race car. And and I'm just like, how did that happen? How I didn't ask them to put my logo. I didn't send them any files. I just saw somebody took a picture of the 993 at the Idlers race with my logo on the wing. And that was pretty significant. I'm like, oh, wow, they kind of knew about me. But I've been obsessing over them for the longest time. And from there, Mark Arsenal, who was interested in getting in contact with them. So my name asked me, hey, can you put me in touch with them? And gave them the email, and the rest was history. And, and now we're Mark from, from Fat Lace, right, if I remember correctly? Yes, yeah, Fat Lace, founder of Fat Lace and Illust. Uh, this was back in 2011. And at SEMA 2011, that's when he first debuted the first uh, RWB here at, at, uh, in the States. Yeah, uh, it was him, uh, and, him, and didn't, him and Brian Scudder like have them done around the, at the same time kind of thing? Yep, yep. And there was another 993 RWB that was built uh, all at the same time, first, second, and third car, all in one shot. And uh, it was amazing just seeing that in person. But I 
still couldn't afford my, you know, to build one until, you know, way late, later. So, but just seeing that the car in the garage right now is just still surreal. Um, just because I, I was so obsessed with that, you know, look and style for the longest time. It's amazing. Oh, look, it's still a beautiful car. Let's be honest here. I mean, it's, it's always going to be a beautiful car, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But with that being the case, though, obviously, and as what, and with you being so under pump in regards to work, what of the work stuff that you can talk about can you talk about that we might look to to look and see in 2021? Oof. Is there anything I can talk about for 2021? This is where you can say, like, which NDAs can I not talk about and which NDAs can I not talk about? You've got to quickly right. run through in your head. Most, I mean, on touch on top of my head, there's almost everything for 2021 are all under NDAs. So <laughs> I cannot talk about anything. Well, <laughs> can you tell us, is, well, can you say you're going to be working on some aftermarket products? You're going to maybe be working on some body work, maybe some liveries. Maybe is that something you can say? Yeah. Okay. So I'll I'll have a few European car projects, uh, mm-hmm. a few Japanese car projects, uh, a few livery projects, <laughs> and and um, I, there's there's always things popping up. Like today, there was another email I got today from a builder, and I'm just excited to work with these guys again. So um, I wish I could talk more in, in details, but a lot of them are still in the planning stages and I don't want to. Hey, John, hopefully, fingers crossed, we can connect at SEMA and you can fill us in on all the projects that you've been working on, which will probably be about three quarters of the SEMA field, I'm guessing, at this by this point. <laughs> that would be great. That would be great. Yes. But what about on the other side of the, the flip with the flip of the coin on the comic world? Have you got anything in the, in the pipeline for that as well, I should say? Yes. So we're finishing up volume three of Batman Earth One. Uh, written mm-hmm. by Jeff Johns and the great Gary Frank. Uh, we've been working on this for a while. It's um, volume three took a little bit longer, uh, but it's slated to come out in June of next year. So I'm excited. I'm down to like, the last few pages here and we'll be uh, finishing that off hopefully uh, soon and, and, um, yeah, we'll we'll save you a copy. <laughs> oh, I'm looking forward to it, John. I'm say, but with that being the case, and for anyone that doesn't know to find you, where's the best place to find you online? Online, just uh, on Instagram at John Sabal, J-O-N-S-I-B-A-L. Same with Facebook. Well, John, I mean, look, I mean, I know you're a busy guy. I'm so happy that you spent the time with me today but it's been a real pleasure to talk to you about going, taking a step back to your journey and talking about how you sort of come to this point where you are, which is truly incredible and all that hard work that you've paid and certainly paying off you. You are definitely one of the busiest people I know working in the automotive sector. And not only that, you've also got this whole other life in a different genre altogether as well. So I'm very, very impressed by everything you do, my man. Pleasure was all mine, bro. It was always fun jump on uh, your podcast and uh, love all the questions and uh, right. appreciate uh, the it. time. 
Thank you. Thank you. But uh, so for everyone out there, obviously go check out John Savile's incredible work. Follow him on Instagram. Follow him on Facebook. Uh, for me, you can always definitely smash that like button uh, as much as you can in regards to the No Breaking podcast, be it on any of all way, shape, or form as platforms. Find us obviously on, uh, what is it, uh, Spotify, Pandora, iTunes, iTunes, you name it. Anyone there, you can find us on there. Leave us a fantastic review. That's where I like to say at least five stars, bare minimum. Say some nice words. Uh, it really it warms the cockles of my heart and makes my mum happy if you do that. Um, please subscribe, tell some friends about it, share it as much as you can. If you've got any questions for me, you can always find me on Instagram at no breaking. Um, but other than guys, thank you so much for listening and uh, we'll just talk to you next time. Thanks again, guys. Bye-bye.